I made the fatal mistake of thinking you'd get softer rather than louder. So three minutes after, I'm thinking, any minute now, they'll go soft. What happened? You, ki- you, you kids, you do love each other, I know. Hey, you can't, you know, do you have to pay a consult? It's Quasimodo Genitai Sunday. There you go. Quasimodo. You knew that. You win the new car and the cruise around the world. See Martha Schlesselman for the check. So, uh, welcome to Quasimodo. It's Quasimodo Genitai, which is Latin for, as I recall, the, 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 the introit, like newborn babies, I think, is how the, the introit starts if you use the old system. So, there you go. So everybody gets a fresh start at Easter. You know, that's it. Like newborn babies, drink from the pure spiritual milk. You know, it's great. So uh, here we go. New birth was the old title. Quasimodo uh, Genitai. So here we go. Blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. So Jesus rises, takes a fresh start. Everybody rises. Everybody gets a fresh start. Um, so it's a great time of the year. By the way, nice job not kneeling because I forgot to announce it. And then I thought, this will be a disaster any second now. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> Half the congregation is going to kneel. The other is going to stand up and they're both going to look at each other like, you're guilty. What are you doing? <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for remembering that you don't, you know, during, East, during the Easter season, the 50 days, you'll know when the, pa- when the candle comes off the altar, then you start to kneel again, normal time. You've got to have feast days and then you have regular days. We're in feast days. Love everybody, forgive them. Everybody gets a fresh start. Um, you can't contain yourself. You could hardly kneel when you know Jesus is tearing around, showing himself to everybody every eighth day. So, all right, here we go. Almighty and everlasting God, who through the death and resurrection of your Son has proclaimed to us the gospel of peace, grant that by the power of his resurrection we may be born anew to a living hope and so overcome the world. Through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. That's nice, okay. Sign your name on here, check your box, uh, drop some money in the basket. Fred Gady, who's a troublemaker, uh, you know, he's, he's working a full-time job and then he's going to full-time seminary and he's acting like a full-time vicar in West Chicago and he's always like, he just, he floats around like the Buddha, everything is fine, you see Fred, life is good. I just, it's just nice to know him. So anyway, he needs Spanish language hymnals, you know Fred is, can speak Spanish and he preaches in Spanish and does the liturgy in Spanish? So he needs some Spanish language hymnals. That congregation is transitioning uh, from, you know, folks like you to folks who speak another language. And Fred is the linchpin for all that. It's quite remarkable stuff. So um, be kind to Fred and Val when you see him. You know, they're hardly better people than Val and uh, Fred Gady. Um, and if we can help them out along the way, I mean, the one thing they don't have is money. And the one thing you do have is money, so this will be an even trade. It'll be great, unless you want to learn Spanish. So your choice, I guess I boiled it down to, you can put 10 bucks in the basket or you can learn Spanish, okay? Pretty much got it down to that. That's where we're going today. Uh, you know, we've been forever on this icon, but then, um, you know, forever we go. So I, what I want to do, what I've been trying, well, first let me pitch next week. So after the late service, there'll be Jimmy John's sandwiches in there, uh, and then we will, um, then Meltem will, at when, you know, we, know, we all get settled, and I think we'll go in the sanctuary so she can talk about icons in general, but her icon, and it's probably better if we're there. We debated about where to go, but we'll probably put a screen up on one side so she can show a few slides and then talk. So come to late service or come back after late service, have a sandwich in the gym, and then, um, so gosh, if we think about that, 11 o'clock service, 12, you see your friends, you're nice to people, 
you give some more money to Fred Gady. Then you're probably ready to eat by about 22 minutes after, or maybe 27 after, which means that puts us back in the sanctuary about 1 o'clock-ish. And she'll go, you know, she does talk well. Uh, you know, she, she's a very interesting woman. Um, in fact, we had this brother from Tizay was here on Friday for the younger folks, and he walks in the sanctuary and he goes, Mel Tem. Like, all right, the world is a very small place. He's from France, you know, she's from Istanbul, we're from Wheaton, and he goes, I said, okay, that's, so that was a very interesting little moment there. Um, so anyway, good enough. Um, so in the days of Easter, one of the joyful things is to see the cross in a different way. And what I've tried to get you to do is, um, and, and frankly, this icon helps, it, helps us, you know, what we're trying to do, you can, you can have a very bloody, gory, literal cross. Um, we didn't have one, one, because um, this was sort of your first icon. It was our first icon together. It was a new thing. It was an introduction. And I didn't want it to be off-putting. I wanted as gentle a Jesus as I could get and still have him on the cross. Because of that, um, it rang in the Eastern tradition a little more than the Western tradition, but it also gives you um, a Jesus who's uh, a little more of a utility player. So, you know, he can, he, he's good there all the way around, not just in the, in the, the sort of grim days of Lent, but, I mean, that, that Jesus who sort of glows and... Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, that's good. That's all right. Oh, boy. Yeah, see, here's the thing. All right, well, we'll be okay. There you go. That's good. Um, uh, this Jesus who sort of, well, you've got pictures in front of you, which is actually better even. You know, the Jesus who sort of, he's, he, he glows. You can kind of see through him. You remember that he takes you to another place. He's almost alive. Is he dying? Is he dying? Is he going down into death? Is he coming back up into life? He doesn't bleed much, but you see even from the gospel reading today that after he's alive, the wounds are still important because every once in a while, you know, three in ten of you actually need to put your finger in there to feel good about that. You know, and the other seven of you are fine, but you've got other problems, so we'll work on those later. You know, but he, so everything is valuable. Um, you need a little bit of blood because he gets pierced in the side and blood and water come out, baptism and Eucharist. And, you know, John is all about the symbolism and what's happening next, and here we go, and think about it this way, and it's so practical. And what I, what I want for you to do, or what I hope for you to have, is an experience of this... Um, icon of the crucifixion of Jesus, which is bigger, which is bigger than simply um, his death. Now, in a sense, you could say there's nothing bigger than his death, and I completely understand that. So if I could say it more, you know, more thoroughly, what I'd say to you is we want to excavate the death. We want to look at all the parts and pieces. We want to probe the depths of what's happening on the cross. You know, when you've said that an innocent man dies, you've, you've hardly said anything, because that's very common in this world. When you said the Son of God dies for your sins... You've said everything, but you can keep talking about that forever. And there are all sorts of nuances about that, which I hope that you'll you know, appreciate so that, um, uh, so that when you come with particular problems, every day your presenting problem is not going to be your sin. You're always a sinner and you always need that forgiveness, but frankly, there's some days when you come and you're quite concerned about your teenager or you're quite worried about your job or you know, your mother is ill or something else is happening and it takes a while to connect your sins with what's happening or the evil of the world. And so what I hope that you'll have is a more robust theology of what it means to have Christ on the cross. In one sense, Christ on the cross is everything. It is absolutely everything. There's nothing 
that can't be pulled out of what you see there. So what I'm saying to you is, what we need to do is pull that out so that we shorten the time of your suffering between when you're very worried about your child or you're very worried about your sick parent or you're very worried about your job or you're very worried about the world and the time that consolation comes to you. Um, So, you know, this is an exercise in seeing, I guess, or in reading an icon to get a little closer. The way to do that, or one way I've tried to suggest to you that we can do that is if um, we sort of think about the words on the cross. And I, I, you know, just to remind you, you know, what, what, you know, when you look up there, I want you to see more than the crucifixion. So this, so that, so I just suggested to you some possibilities. Like when you hear Jesus say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. um, One of the things that you uh, could hear is that you don't need to be angry. Um, the world has been characterized by anger for the past three or four years, and then sometimes you think the world is going to blow apart. America's a little better because the economy's a little better. It's been a fascinating study of our souls, you know, how, how deeply angry we were as a nation, as a people, as individuals during the time that the economy was bad. You know, it's very easy. It's a very, it's a very short step to Jesus saying, where, you're, where, you're, where your uh, treasure is, there your heart. Where your heart, there your treasure I mean, that revealed something about us. But the world, you know, is a very angry place. Partly when you look there, what you realize is that Jesus doesn't have to be angry, or that you don't have to be angry. Jesus is not angry at all. Look at him. He's not angry at all. He's just been put to death for something he didn't do. It doesn't get worse than that. Okay? And he's, so partly what you, and I just, you know, we've talked about this so often, that no man is your enemy, and anger is, you know, almost always not helpful. It's very difficult to be righteously angry. Sometimes it's important. Sometimes it's cathartic. It does tell you what you love. But honestly, anger is a very, very dangerous thing. And you see Jesus there, and in this particular icon, he is not angry. If Jesus isn't angry, you don't have to be angry. So that was sort of the first one I gave you. And then this notion of today, um, you'll be in paradise with me. And I tried to sum that for you, which is, you know, bullies don't always win. The world is a tough place. You know, people get beaten down. And there is the sense, you know, that evil often wins. Um, you know, one of the great mistakes I made was not recording the thing from last Friday. I, I said, Mary said, should I record it? I'm like, no, don't record it. Well, here's the thing. In the, within the first 11 seconds of, I knew I was dead and stupid. It was so stupid. It was like the stupidest thing. I'm like, you know, it was like, I said to Mary, did you record? She's like, you told me not to. I'm like, oh, nobody ever does what I say. Why do you do what I say? <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, you know, it was just the most remarkable uh, thing. And for me, there were several different things that happened. Um, one of the most interesting things for me that I've been thinking a lot about is he said, I have a friend who describes um, the joy of Christ as a joy that is so large that it can contain is the word he used. He didn't use the word absorb that it can contain all the sorrow of the world and still be joy. That's a very fascinating statement, which you would expect from somebody who's been at a monastery for 30 or 40 years. Okay? So when you look at this, can you see a joy who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, suffering its shame, right? That's what the text says. The text says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, suffering its shame. So when you look at this, 
You do, of course, see a crucifixion, but you do, in fact, see joy. You see a joy that, contain, that can contain all the sorrows of the world, including all your sorrows, and still be joy. That is a fascinating way to think about the crucifixion. You know? And that's in these words, you know, um, uh, you know th- that's in these words when he says, today you'll be in paradise with me, which are t- is true for you as it were for the guys hanging next to him. So what I've hoped is that you'll start to see, um, you'll see, uh, you can begin to see the crucifixion and the crucifix as your greatest ally and as your greatest consolation and your greatest peace because Jesus received it in this way. He received it without anger. He received it in joy, your joy. He took it as his glory. Remember in John's Gospel, Jesus, Jesus says, my great glory is when I'm raised up on the cross. It took people a couple of takes to get that. The way the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be raised up. And then later he says, and my greatest glory, my greatest holiness, my greatest dose of heaven for all of you is when I'm on the cross. So, I mean, partly what you do when you look at this now, you see this is what heaven is like. It's a very strange thing. And, you know, a year or two ago, what I talked to you about is how this is the most beautiful thing in the world. And that, you know, that takes some effort to see that this is the most beautiful thing that ever happened. You know, that this particular act renders every other act beautiful. It's a very difficult thing to say. It's a very difficult thing to say. You look at heaven when you look at this icon. It's a very difficult thing to say, but it is also true because Jesus says he finds his ultimate glory on the cross. And glory is the biblical word. It's a technical term for what's going on in heaven. It's It's the holiness of heaven that permeates everything. So basically, Jesus is saying to you, heaven and earth interlock at the point of the cross. So this whole notion that Jesus is somewhere else, you know, we right now, the Paschal candle is at the altar because Jesus is at the altar. In 50 days, less a week, we're going to move it to the baptismal font because Jesus is in the font. The message is the same at both of those things, that Jesus never leaves you, that at the cross, heaven and earth interlock in the person of Jesus, that he is, as he says, the temple that gets rebuilt after three days. Right? Where is God? God's in his temple. Where is his temple? On the cross. So when you look at this, yes, of course, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, of course it is that. But what that means is because he's been forsaken, you're not forsaken. This is a tremendously positive image, even though that is just counterintuitive. But part of the way this is constructed with the light, uh, with the frailty of the body, with the gentleness of the way the limbs um, pain, the way that the, 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 that the, the hands don't curl in reflex as they would if you get poked in the middle of your hand, your hands curl in reflex. They don't, his hands, like we looked at the um, Eisenheim altarpiece, it, it, you know, he's almost gnarled. In this, his hands don't curl. He's not reflexively responding to the anger that was shown him. Instead, his hands remain peaceful. You know, his body is not twisted and broken. One of the agonies of crucifixion was to twist the body in a way that was always painful as you hung there. You know, it's not, it's not a twisted body. It's almost as if he could step out into the room to you. 
So if you can begin when you come in, all I'm really trying to say to you is when you come to the cross, when you step into the sanctuary, whatever it is that is your presenting problem of the week, one week it's going to be your parents, another week it's going to be your kid, another week it's going to be your job, another week it's going to be me. Another week it's going to be yourself, and another week it's going to be the guy sitting next to you. But what you're meant to see, and this is why this is why this is the thing that holds a space. It's why it's seven by seven. You know, it's life size. That's a life size Jesus right there. He's roughly a little over five feet, which would have been about ancient world Jew. That's about right. You know, if you ever go you ever go to castles in Europe and all the doors are right? because people were smaller. Because you have more nutrition than they did, and you grow bigger. Okay, so that's a, that's a life-size Jesus you're looking at. And that life-size Jesus comes to you with whatever trouble you have, and you begin then to see your own life in the light and love of the cross. So you don't have to be angry, and bullies don't always win. And the Lord does have... Uh, did you catch Tim Tebow's Easter sermon? Yeah. You know what? It wasn't bad. You know what? It wasn't bad. He, he said something like, whether you're a hero, whether you're a goat, if you know, and the only part I'd probably argue with is, if you know that God has a hard-determined, chalk-marked plan for you of your life here and there, so you have to fight it. He didn't actually say all that, but that's what I read into it. If you know that God has a plan for your life, then he said, and the, the big thing was, he said, there's always joy and there's always hope. That was actually a pretty good little bit of theology that comes from a missionary's kid. Forget about the football part. That's from growing up where people don't look like you and don't speak your language, see? Because that's how missionaries talk when you talk to them. They talk about, the Lord has got this sorted out. And if the Lord has it sorted out, then always join hope. So here's the thing. This means that the Lord has got it sorted out, so there's always joy and hope. And of course, then, the proximity to the altar means, you know, at the elevation. I mean, part of the reason we elevate, I was reticent to elevate be above my shoulders because beyond the shoulders, at the shoulder point is where Lutherans begin to get uncomfortable, you know. But if you can get the chalice as close as you can to the cross, and we actually stood there with a chalice as we were trying to measure out how far it should be, the, the cross is eight feet, which is a very nice number, right above the dead center of the altar. So if you elevate it, if I'm six feet tall and I elevate a chalice about a foot or a foot six, I can almost, what I didn't want to do is clank the chalice on the bottom, but I did want to get it desperately close. Because what you're supposed to see is that what's rolling out of the cross is rolling into the chalice and it's all over the altar and it's coming to you and your life is going to get better because of that. You see? So this actually is meant to be the locus, the place, the spot where heaven and earth come together and you can live, because of that you can live in joy and hope. And everybody gets a second chance for Easter, right? Okay. So um, I can't remember where we stopped, although I think it was my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, I will at least say then... Um, and I've said this to you before, that the Lord suffers more deeply than you'll ever suffer. So when you say, nobody can understand what I'm going through, is technically not correct. It may be that all of us may not be understand, but part of the reason Jesus dies such a desperate death is so that nobody can ever say, my death, my pain, my trouble is worse than his death, pain, trouble. Basically what happens on the cross is all the worst things that we can do to each other all the very worst things that we can do to each other 
we do to Christ. It's done to him, all the very worst things. And then, of course, he rises back up from that. So all the worst things we've done, all the worst things that have been done to us, there is always the hope for resurrection. And nobody can say, my thing is worth. It's very common for us to say, nobody can understand what I'm going through. And for the last 20 years or so, both psychologists and philosophers have been talking about the individuality of people's experience. And you can't exactly mimic other people's experience because we're all different. Okay, that's fair enough. But there is a common human thread. So you and I roughly respond to pain in the same way. Or there are predictable responses to how you and I will respond to uh, you know, particular things that we face, death or um, trouble in our families. There's predictable responses. There's patterns. If there weren't patterns, there wouldn't be any psychiatrists. If everything was a one-off, the world blows apart. There's commonality among us. Jesus bundles all that up in the commonality of his death. He dies for you. So you can never say, he doesn't know what I'm going through. As tough as your week has been, whatever happened this week, you can never say, he doesn't know. He knows. He knows and he answers. Right? And all of that is contained in, you know, why have you forsaken me? I just take, I note the point there mid-page that Jesus is both praying for the church as its head and he's also praying as the church. So Jesus is the head of the church, so he prays for you. It's just absolutely consoling. It's Romans 8. In Romans 8, everybody quotes the, the part about everything works together for the good of those who love God. Everybody misses the point that it says that Je- that's because Jesus is praying for you and the Holy Spirit is praying for you. That's both contained in that 15 verses. That Jesus is always praying for you. He spends his days praying for you. It's in Hebrews too, but it's so clear in those verses. And everybody always quotes those. Jesus is praying for you all day long. The Holy Spirit is interceding. It doesn't say pray. It says he intercedes for you with sighs too deep for words. That means Jesus spends his whole day praying for you. The Holy Spirit spends his whole day praying for you. Your life can't be a wreck. Your life at the end of the day is joy. Your life at the end of the day is hope. There's always hope. There doesn't need to be anger. No man is your enemy, and Jesus is fixing it up. You're meant to see all that when Jesus says, you know, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is forsaken so that you don't need to be forsaken. And Jesus knows your pain. You know, whatever pain you've got, Jesus has had that. That's why where we started, and I would just say it to you this way, your entire life is lived between the icon of the transfiguration, where we started, and this this or any icon of the crucifixion. Because the, trans- the transfiguration is the absolute best thing that can happen to any of you. To be in the presence of God in heaven, where the dead live, Moses, Elijah, and all your family and friends. So Jesus comes alive, and that glow permeates people. It illumines them. It enlivens them. It makes all your dead alive. And it washes away anything but joy and hope. It's eternal beauty. That's what, so the transfiguration is the best possible experience in life. Okay? And the crucifixion is the worst possible experience in life. And your entire life is lived between those two poles. There are days when you think everything is great. God bless you. Enjoy the day. Because there are clouds on the horizon, and soon there will be trouble. Okay? It's coming at you. There's a reason why we say... Deliver us from the evil one and make the sign of the cross in the Lord's Prayer. 
Because the last thing that we say is, thanks for all the stuff that we just had, and we know there's going to be trouble. Okay? We always know there's going to be trouble. Troubled isn't the last word. And that's true from both the icon of the transfiguration, as good as it gets, and the icon of the crucifixion, as bad as it gets. There'll be trouble, but everything is pushing you back toward heaven, back toward the transfiguration. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of what you're saying is, he was forsaken, so I don't need to be forsaken. He's forsaken in my place. You know? Which means then, your Heavenly Father always loves you. God's default towards you is love. He never does anything wrathful to you. He may punish you, but there was that genius little bit from Madeleine Engel who wrote The Little Prince that was the margin comment. Like, we could have all gone home for a year after that margin comment where it said, the only reason to punish is to change and the only reason to change is to love. So the only punishment that's really punishment is born of love and everything else is revenge and anger. Okay? You could live your whole life by that. That's in the cross. You know? That's, that's there in the cross. So God's default every day of your life is that he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He always acts toward you in love. There's never an action from God that is not an act toward you in love. There's no, there's no action. God doesn't work on you in any way. When heaven and earth interlock at the cross, there's no action that God does that is not done through his son, which means there's no action done to you that is not love. And when you're punished... And you do get punished the way the children are punished. It is to change you for the better, to slide you back toward the, the, the icon of the transfiguration. Boom, that's where you're going. So you, if you just take a second, you think about the troubles you had in the last week. You just think, think of the burdens that you brought this morning. Whatever it was, you can say, you can know that God stands by you and flips that for your good. It's not that he brings evil to you. It's that any evil is flipped for your good and anything that happens to you will be modified in a way that only pulls you back toward heaven. If only you'll have it, you see. If only you'll have it. So um, that's all in the notion of you know God being forsaken so that you're not. Um... I'm kind of at thy thirst point. Part of the reason I'm going quickly is I'm embarrassed to give you the same handout, you know, nine times in a row. <laughs> then, then somebody said, why do you never finish? I said, because this isn't a transcript. It's just an outline. It's just that my outlines run a bit long, okay? So, um, you know, the I thirst point, you know, brings up a whole bunch of things. And, and you, can, you can go to the, this whole notion that they give Jesus sour wine on the cross. There's all kinds of things that come forward from that. One is they give him the worst that they've got. You know, like that toaster oven that somebody gave the church where Val cut the place on fire during Easter sermon when we were on the radio a few years ago. Yeah, so that's in the sour wine. That toaster oven has been forgiven in the sour wine given to Jesus on the cross. It's not obvious, but uh, I talked to Ganey yesterday. He said he's in a meeting, and he says, where did we get this furniture? And they're like, well, somebody uh, didn't want it anymore. This is their, in their comments. He said, oh, somebody didn't want this furniture. He said, so just let me get this straight. We furnish the church with other people's garbage. I'm g- glad that he's saying that at another congregation, not mine. <laughs> but you take the point, of course, you know. You know, 
You bring, so you bring your worst to the Lord, you know, uh, no, no, see? And so, so even bringing your, even bringing, you know, what they give Jesus is the garbage stuff. And they give it to him in a way that it's meant to deaden the experience. And of course, Jesus rejects what is worst, and he rejects anything that would deaden the experience, you know? That's not what is happening on the cross. So, you know, this, this, this notion of thirsting, this notion of lament, um, is part of the suffering, and it's a very physical suffering that you feel yourselves. How you doing, okay? You still okay? Let me just take my first breath of the hour. So, um, I got to hit on time because we have the provost of the St. Louis Seminary coming to baptize his grandchild at the late service. That's one I don't want to be late for, okay? <laughs> so, uh, you know... Every once in a while, you have to clean up and look like you know what you're doing. So um, things, things take a better turn here. We had a professor in the first service, too. Very interesting. We had a Fort Wayne guy in the first service while the St. Louis guy in the second service. We've called in the Israeli-Palestinian mediators, and they're going to get together. <laughs> at eclectic after the late service. It's going to be great. So um, it's going to be great. Um, th- then you get this very... Th- then you get this very... Uh, unpredictable and predictable thing where Jesus says to, um, he talks to John and to Mary. And so if you ever, you know, this is St. John Lutheran Church, and if you ever got more icons for the back, like at the back chapel, you should probably, the natural thing would be an icon of St. John and St. Mary. In fact, had we not had the angels here, um, on the, the traditional thing to put on the two sides, somewhere on the icon of St. John and St. Mary because they stuck it out with him. And I was reluctant to, we had the option, and we chatted it over for an hour, of, of taking the angels out and putting St. John and St. Mary there. And I was reluctant to tamper with, every one of these things felt like such a big risk, anything that was a one-off, even this one where we'd seen it. I was reluctant ever to change an artist's thing, even though you know I could have a good, a good chatter with them about why things would... I, I couldn't sort of bring myself to say, because obviously you're paying for this, she'll do whatever you ask her to do in a, in, after a fashion, but, um, you know, the other possibility would have been that. There's something about the weeping of the angels, though, which is, which is there, that heaven and earth sort of weeps over this is, is, is quite nice. But if you'd ever do more, um, you know, the back chapel would, St. John and St. Mary probably should be there, especially since this is St. John. Because what you have here is not just the notion of well, I shouldn't put it that way. Let me put it this way. What you have here is the notion of you've had the restoration of individuals with the um, thieves on the cross. Now you have the restoration of family with um, Mary and John. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Right? And you remember the woman is this very respectful term that you hear of Eve in Eden that you hear of Mary, the second Eve, in John chapter 2. Woman, what does this have to do with me? People think Jesus is assassin off. He's not at all. He's actually sort of setting the cosmic table there. He's, he's, he's say, basically, that response means, you know, you're here and you're extraordinarily important, but actually my Heavenly Father is running this show right here. And, then her, and you can tell she's not offended by her response, which is this genius response. Do whatever he tells you. That's not how people talk when they're offended. They stomp out. They don't say, 
I really love him deeply. He's the son of God. Do whatever he tells you. That's not what people say when they've been cranked at. I mean, when your kids um, sassed you, is that what you said? <laughs> you know? No, it's not what you said. So you have, what, you, what you have is the great restoration of individuals. Then you have the great restoration of family. Of, I can't be here anymore to be your son. So this is your son. And in the ancient world, you know, there wasn't any pension system. There wasn't any safety net. There was no Social Security or Medicare. If you didn't have family, when you didn't have money to eat or to care for yourself, you died. And see, this is what made the Christians, the early Christians, so striking. Because the early Christians started to take care of people they didn't know. This is when people bust on the church. They have no idea what they're talking about. Horrible things have been done in the name of Jesus. I, I don't, you know, horrible things. But also really good things like... You know, in the early church, it was the Christians who used to pick up the dead and wash them and give them a proper burial. Other people let them rot by the side of the road. It was the Christians who respected creation that way. It was Christians who started hospitals. It was Christians who started school. It was Christians who cared for women when women were not cared for. It was Christians. It was the church who did that. And so you see, what you see here is both the restoration of family, but also the broader restoration of community. And this has always been interpreted by the broader church as not only a mother and a son, and a son and a mother, but also as the apostle and the church. It's always been interpreted that way, as Jesus blessing the church is in a community. Now, he's built up to it. It's been individuals, it's been sinners, it's been a mother and a son, and then it becomes the church. And so you have Jesus blessing down on people, even from the very people who betrayed him. And denied him, you have Jesus spending his last breath blessing him. You know, so, you know, when you come and see the icon, yeah, it's true. I mean, the stuff we sing is true. You know, he, he dies for my sins, he dies for your sins, but the implications of that are astounding. You know, you, ju- you just have to see all the, if you're going to, you just have to see all that that means. It means that you don't have to be angry, that there is hope, that this is beauty, that God stands by you, that God knows what you're suffering, that God puts the pieces back together again, that he puts you into community, that he shows you love from other people. So he loves you and other people love you and heaven has come to earth and the gifts are here and your life can have meaning and joy and hope. Your life can matter. See, and then when you hear arguments about maybe you shouldn't have a body on the cross, this is why, you know, all our eyes cross and, you know, we hardly, you know, we hardly know, we almost convulse at that. Because if you don't have a body on the cross, you've lost all the things we've talked about for a month. That's why the body is on the cross. I'm well aware that the body rises from the dead, but that's why you have a tomb. That's another story, just slightly later in the week. And you hold those two things together, a full cross and an empty tomb. You hold those two things together. It's extraordinarily important. Man, you give me a week off, I can go forever. <laughs> All right, here's the thing. We've got to pray because um, we've got to go do other stuff. But I love you. I'll see you next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.